every one of us here would, after the time that we've spent together this morning, walk out the same doors that we came in with a deeper sense of gratitude and thankfulness after being reminded of all that you have done for us. Lord, we want our lives to be an offering, a living sacrifice that's holy and acceptable to you. And yet we know that this happens not by looking at ourselves or to ourselves, but looking away from self and towards the cross and towards the resurrection and towards our victorious Savior seated at the Father's right hand with all rule and authority, power and dominion, high above every name and every title that can be given. So Father, please help both those things to happen today. That as we look at you, that our lives would be transformed and that you'd help us to go forward with a deep sense of thankfulness and gratitude but that it would all be worship. Thank you for the opportunity to gather here. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Good to see you. Got your Bibles. Grab them and go to Romans chapter 14. Amen. Thanks, Alan. Hey, let's do this. Now, I, I, don't want us, I don't want us to pretend. We've all been through difficult seasons, okay? But as Alan said, everybody in here, for some of us right now, it's a good season, right? Or things are a little better than they have been in the past. I'm sure we've all got stuff. But how many of you, and I want you, to, I want you to be honest, but how many of you would say with Alan, again, and I appreciate his willingness to, to share his heart and to be vulnerable, but how many of you would actually say that this has been a difficult season right now? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Yeah. Okay. I want to pray for everybody, again, that uh, says they're going through a difficult season right now. Father, again, Lord, we thank you that you're Lord of our lives. And Father, I thank you for Alan and his willingness to share his heart this morning. I also thank you for those that were just willing to do the simple act of raising their hand and testifying to the fact that it's hard right now. Lord, in the name of Jesus and by the blood of Jesus Christ, we pray that you would strengthen them in the midst of battle. You're Lord over it all, and we know that just with a word you can stand up and the storm can go away. But Father, you call us as your followers to go through these seasons sometimes. So Lord, for those that are in it right now, we're trusting that you're working all things together for good. We know that. But Lord, I pray just a special measure of grace and blessing upon their lives, that you'd strengthen them in the midst of this season. And all God's people said, amen. Okay, Romans 14, that's where we're at. Um, for the sake of time, uh, I'm just going to read the first verse and the last verse of this passage. Uh, last week I took a little break, called a little audible, and uh, went to the book of Matthew. So we're going to do all of chapter 14 today. But look at it with me. Let me just read it, and then, and then we'll jump into it. Verse 1 says, and this is a, pretty much a summary of the entire chapter. Verse 1 says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But don't quarrel over opinions. And then I want you to look down at verse 23. Says, but whoever has doubts is, con is condemned if he eats because he is not eating from faith. And then I really want you to get this last little phrase. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Okay, and you'll see the word faith in both that first verse and that last verse. And so there's kind of a sandwich there and we're going to be talking about that. Uh, a lot of stuff in, in between and what Paul puts in between there. How many of you 
with maybe your spouse or your roommate or perhaps those that you share an office space with have ever had a little silent battle over the thermostat. Over who gets to control the temperature, yeah. Um, I don't know that there's statistics done on this, but I feel like most marriages might battle at some point over, over the temperature in the, in the house. Here's you know, what happens. Hannah, Hannah and I, are, I feel like we used to be worse at this. We're a little bit better now. I think we've, we've found after 22 years a good happy medium maybe. But you know, I'm usually hot and she's usually cold. And you know, we try to talk about it. We try to communicate. Um, but usually what we'll do is, is if I'm too hot, I just silently go to the thermostat and hit the down button a little bit. And if she's too cold, she'll just go to the thermostat and and just crank it up a little bit. And so we can kind of constantly be fighting this kind of silent battle on who gets to control the temperature, the culture, the atmosphere um, in our home. And I say that because much of what Paul was talking about in this portion of the letter, not just chapter 14, but next week into 15, some of what he's talked about already, Um, in chapter 13 and earlier on in 12, he's talking about the temperature of the church or the the culture of the church. And he's not speaking here in degree, like about degrees of hot or cold that are measured in like Fahrenheit or Celsius, but he's talking about a temperature that a church has in regards to acceptance or performance. Acceptance or performance. See, grace is acceptance-based performance, that we are accepted in Christ, in the beloved, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's out of that acceptance that we live our lives. But law or legalism is all about performance-based acceptance. You've got to do something in order to gain that acceptance. You have to act a certain way until you'll be received. And I would argue that every single church member, every single Christian, a member of a local church, carries with them an invisible thermostat with which they are constantly calibrating the temperature of the fellowship, either to the, of the fellowship of the local church to that of the gospel of grace found in Jesus Christ, or they're constantly calibrating the temperature to that of their own personal preferences and convictions, which ends up making the culture feel like one of performance-based acceptance rather than acceptance-based performance. Are you with me? And, and the point here, the thing I want you to get, I'm going to talk in some broad strokes here about kind of the big ideas that's going on here before we get into the kind of the details of the text. But, but the, the point in all of this that, that Paul is talking about um, in this section is it's, it's somewhat of a narrow path, and I want to make sure we understand the context correctly is that what he's not talking about in regards to judging our brother or judging our sister or judging those in the, in the fellowship and creating this culture of performance rather than a, of acceptance, he's not speaking of not judging false doctrine. He's not speaking of not making judgments on uh, people that are openly practicing sin. Okay, Christ came to die for our sins, and we all still struggle with sin, yet we're to be calling one another out of that. We're, we're never to be um, undiscerning in regards to openly just practicing sin. 
Um, he's also not speaking of being accepting, accepting or welcoming to just uh, false teaching and false doctrine and false teachers and false prophets within the church. We're to be discerning. We're to be judging in those things, that we, uh, that we don't remain infants and spiritually unwise. But what he's talking about in this context is the way in which Christians interact with each other, each other and that we don't judge each other in regards to secondary things that do not matter and are not, and that we lose our center and being centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace that is found in him. Now, in the context, as we'll see as we walk through it, you, you primarily have two practical issues that he's speaking to, but those are really um, just kind of pointers to many other issues that could fall underneath this. In the context, the primary issues that he's going to bring up are things that you can eat or not eat, is one of the things that they struggled over, and also um, the importance of acknowledging certain days, whether it be festivals or Sabbaths or different things like that. So in the context, what was, what was happening is that you had Jewish people who would come to believe in Jesus, and you had Gentile people who would come to believe in Jesus. And both these people come from very different backgrounds. And just as a little side note here, if I can just pause for a second, just in the same way that we come to the text, and for those of you that attend here regularly, you know that one of the things we value is understanding the context of the text, that we don't just want to rip a statement out of its context and out of the flow of thought and make it mean something that it doesn't mean. In the same way, I just want to remind us all that every single person, every single individual that makes up our church, those people come from a context. We come, each one of us, from different backgrounds and different upbringings and different in cultural influences on our life, different home environments in which we were raised, different church experiences that we all had as kids. And God is the only one who sees every single moment of every single life represented here this morning. He has seen every single moment. And he understands where we, where we come from, and he also understands where he's taking us and what he wants to do with us. And so what was happening in the church was, was that there, because, of, because of many of the Jewish dietary laws, uh, as well as many of the Old Testament, Old Covenant Jewish festivals that were celebrated, many of these new Christians were still hanging on to, men, to many of these things, but they weren't doing it in such a way as they thought that they were to earn their salvation, Okay? So you have kind of a different, a different scenario in the book of Galatians where Paul writes with a very different tone, a very different temperament, and he very much uses strong language because in, Gal in Galatia, there, the teaching was that, yeah, you had to believe in Jesus, but you actually had to be circumcised. You had to also follow the law of Moses in order to gain salvation, okay? And that's wrong. And he, he kind of lights the Galatians up and he speaks to it very, very clearly because that's anti the gospel. But what's happening here is you have people who are true brothers and sisters in Christ, but who still acknowledged and practiced some of these things, things that they ate or drank or, di or, or didn't drink or didn't eat or certain days and festivals and Sabbaths that they observed or didn't observe. But they did it all to worship the Lord. They did it all for his honor and for his glory. Now, this is not an exhaustive list at all, but let me give you just a few that I've bumped into over the years in our lives. Whether or not a believer can drink alcohol, facial hair, hair length for men or women, different genres of music, 
homeschool, public school, private school, vaccines and medicines, and I'm not even talking about COVID, I'm just saying like even before that, resistance versus non-resistance, different levels of modesty in regards to jewelry and the way that we dress, whether or not married couples should wear a wedding ring, smoking, tattoos, and of course, whether or not you can play softball on Sundays. Not an exhaustive list by any stretch. But these are things that I would argue that the Bible speaks of as debatable matters that are not the center of our faith. And what I want to do is, as we go through this chapter this morning is I want to kind of show you how it works. Look at the text here. And again, I know I didn't read this. But I want to point out five fours. Five fours. Okay? Um, there's... And by four, I mean the little word, F-O-R, okay? Um, so look at verse, at verse three. He says, let no one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let no one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed, welcomed him. Look at verse seven. It starts off with the word, for. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. Look down at verse 10. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And then the last little sentence of the last verse that I read, for, in verse 23, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now let me show you how this works, okay? And then I promise we're going to get into the text here. I know I'm wandering around a little bit. But whenever you see the word for, you've heard me say this before, is the word for is there to tell you why what was just said before it is true, okay? So the word for gives you the grounds or the reason why what was just said before it is true. In other words, you could substitute in there instead of the word for, you could also often use the word because. So because this is true or because this is said or because we should do this, because of that, this is true, or for, this is true, okay? So what he's, the reason I point that out is with all those fours, the way this, this, this passage is kind of broken up is that Paul gives them some commands and some ways in which they're to act. And they're really, it's pretty much the same command throughout, and that is that we're to be welcoming and not judge our brother or sister. But then he gives these five fours, these reasons why that is true. And these reasons are absolutely beautiful. They are are deep, rich gospel concepts that if we, if we get them, and if we understand them, and if we keep these gospel concepts at the center of our lives and our theology and the way that we live, it will keep us from setting our little spiritual thermostats to a temperature of performance and legalism. And, and instead will keep us calibrated to the temperature of the gospel of grace found in Jesus Christ. Are you with me? Am I making sense? If not, we're going forward anyway, and hopefully it'll make sense as we go, as we go forward. Um, start in verse 1. Start in verse 1, and we'll walk our way through it here. He says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. So if somebody follows, follows one of these one of these rules or, 
or practical things, and they're doing it to honor the Lord. And so somebody that, that wouldn't eat certain meat that was set before them or someone who wouldn't play softball on a Sunday because they felt like all of Sunday is the Lord's day and we just need to set that aside and just honor him. They're doing it to honor the Lord. But if you want to go play softball on Sunday, don't despise the one. It means to look down. Don't look down on the one who's honoring the Lord by setting that aside and by not playing softball on Sundays. But then he says it the other way. He says, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. So if somebody goes and plays softball on Sunday, don't go, wicked sinner. No. And then he comes to the reason. For. For God has welcomed him. Now, did you see the command back in verse 1? Welcome him. Be accept- and again, it's not just like, welcome, hello, good morning. It's not that. It's the idea of taking them in. Sitting down at the table with them. Deep abiding fellowship. Don't let these petty little secondary issues come in the way of what Christ has done for us. Because here's the thing, how dare you, how dare I not be welcoming, not be accepting of someone whom Christ has welcomed? That's the logic. Someone whom God has welcomed. And this is what he says, very straightforward, verse 4. For who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? So he says, welcome him because God has welcomed him. And now he rolls into this imagery of, of like who's really in charge Who's the master? Spoiler alert, it's not you. It's not me. It's Jesus. For who who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And then here's this beautiful little gospel truth. This is so wonderful. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. That's wonderful, is it not? So first of all, these two little gospel truths go together. If I can just put them together. It's we need to remember that God welcomes us into his presence and God is the one who enables us to stand before him. He welcomes us into his presence and he is the one that enables us to stand before him. I've shared this story before, but it's just so fitting and so appropriate for this passage of what, it's just an image of what Paul was trying to communicate here is the story of Mephibosheth. That's found in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Mephibosheth was the grandson of Saul. Saul was an enemy of David. Of course, tried to kill him several times. (coughs) Excuse me. The grandson of Saul and the son of Jonathan, who has now passed away. He is lame in both feet because when he was young, one of the enemies had killed his his dad, Jonathan. And then the... um, the, the midwife that was taking care of him uh, was running away because she thought they would try to come kill um, Jonathan's son because they'd killed him. And she drops him, and, he, and he's lame in both feet. And now he's growing up. David is now king. And David is actively looking to how to show kindness to those of Saul's and Jonathan's household because he's a gracious king and wants to rule that way. And in 2 Samuel chapter 9, it says, Then King David sent and brought Mephibosheth to the house of Makur, the son of Amiel, Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face. And again, Mephibosheth is scared, this, this lame man who scared um, the grandson of one of David's former enemies. And he fell on his face and paid homage. And David said to him, and you've got to get this, because David had never met Mephibosheth before. Mephibosheth had never met, had never met David before. And Mephibosheth comes into his presence, and David goes, Mephibosheth! As if they'd been buddies (laughs) 
for a long time. And Mephibosheth answered and goes, Behold, your servant, I'm here. Um, and David says to him, Do not fear, for I will show you great kindness. Now, two things, okay? And again, we got to come in and out of both of these to get to the application that Paul wants to make. First of all, how do you believe that God receives you? See, this is where it has to start. And again, we're, he wants to get to us showing this kind of grace to others. But you will never show that type of grace to others if you don't understand that this is the way God accepts you. See, if you were to come with all of your lameness, all of your inability, all of your crippledness, as we do each and every week, into God's presence... How do you think God welcomes you? BJ, sorry, you're just right in front of me. But do you... BJ! Terry, Regina! This is how he welcomes you. Do you know that? Or do you feel like he kind of casts you a glance and like, Ugh, eye roll? No. This is how you and I have been welcomed into the fellowship of God. Now, here's the thing. That is true for you. Amen? Are you thankful for that? Okay, secondary point. This is where Paul wants to get. It's also true of the person sitting next to you. Do you see? So not just BJ, but Joe! Good to see you. And they're married, by the way, so don't, you know, there was, I just want to make that clear. He loves you both, okay? Um, Sorry, that was a bad joke. Um, but do you, do you understand that it isn't just true for you? It's true for those around you. And if we understand this gospel truth, it should transform the way that we live. Here, here's, maybe I'll just say this a little bit more succinctly. God went out of his way to bring you into his kingdom, not because you brought so much to the table, but because he wanted to show you mercy and display his power through your weakness. There's a, um, one other illustration on this, and I, <laughs> I'll move on, but um, do you guys know what free agency is in regards to like football, basketball, baseball? Free agency is somebody, a player's contract is up, and then they become a free agent, and other teams, they're no longer bound to that team, and so other teams can you know, make offers to them. And the NBA is probably the worst at this in terms of these massive contracts that these, that these guys get, and they, you know, uh, it, it just becomes a mess, but anyway... There's been one player recently that's, I think he's been on three different teams in the last three or, three or four years, and he recently, um, he, even though he was under contract for this, other, for this other team, he finally was just, you know, he refused to play for him, and he, he wanted to get, you know, bought out by another team and go, go to another team. And finally, because he refused to play for the team that he was kind of contracted to, he went to this other, he went to this other place. And, uh, um, and when he got there, they, they asked him this question. They said, do you think you can play within this new system? And he made, he made a super arrogant remark. He goes, I don't play within a system. I am a system. Yeah, woo, all right, buddy. Um, <laughs> the, the point is, is that, guys, in regards to God bringing us into his family, it wasn't that we were a desired free agent on the market. God's like, ooh, I get him. We're like Mephibosheth. We don't bring a whole lot. But God has purposed to show us mercy and to display his power through our weakness. 
And that's true of you. It's also true of the people sitting around you. And so if we understand and truly believe and are delighting in the gospel truth that we've been welcomed by God, we should therefore welcome other people. And again, this is the primary point that Paul is going to just talk about in different ways as we filter down through this passage. Secondly, the second gospel concept that keeps us calibrated to, to the temperature of grace is, is very straightforward. Christ died to make us his. Christ died to make us his. So God has welcomed us, but he's welcomed us because Christ has died for us. Now God loves us. He's he's the one that sent his son to die for us, that he might bring us to his family. But Christ died. He paid a great price. Look at verses 5 through uh, about 9. It says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Verse 7, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, or this purpose, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Now listen, don't forget this context. We keep coming back to this again and again, but back in in, in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, is that we are to be living lives of continual worship unto God, offering our bodies as holy sacrifices, um, pleasing unto him. Now this, again here, is just said in a different way. This is a call to remember that all of life is for Jesus Christ, amen? Every bit of it. That Christ died for us, and get that little phrase there at the end of verse eight, we are the Lord's. Incredible. As Donnie mentioned this morning as he shared before we sang that last song, blessed assurance that's found in him because it's found in Christ because he has done the work. We belong to him. But Christ died for us so that we might live lives of continual worship. Does anybody in here have a hobby? Hobbies, anybody? What do you do? Let's have a, uh, I guess we, we won't really have that conversation. Here's my hobby. I don't have, I want to be a guy with cool hobbies. I don't have any cool hobbies. I play chess. That's my hobby. It's literally like my only one. Chess.com, it's a little app on your phone constantly. Play chess. Anybody, any chess players? Yeah, see, I feel very alone. It's a weird one. So, um, thanks for that. Uh, not even one hand. I'll just make him feel better. Nope, no, I'm just standing alone. Anyway. But I, I play chess, it's what I do, and it's just kind of what I do in my spare time. It just kind of, I don't know, works, works for me, but I'm not real serious about it. Um, I say all that because the way Paul words this here, especially in verses 7 and nine, through 9 in regards to what Christ has done for us, is that Jesus did not die to create for himself a group of people that would just claim a loose sense of affiliation with one another because they share the same hobby, right? Sometimes, as you can see, it's somewhat rare. When I meet somebody else who plays chess and actually knows how to play chess, it's like, oh, we have this little, you know, for a second, like, oh, you play, oh, cool, yeah, we should, you know, do that. Um, And then we never do, and then it's kind of (laughs) over. But it's our, the fellowship and the nature of our relationship isn't just like we share the same little hobby. He died to create for himself a people who are united in spirit because we are all consumed with living lives of continual worship. 
For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and of the living. From the cradle to the casket, it's all about Jesus. And we're to, and this affects our fellowship, because we don't want to stand in the way of this in somebody else's life. If somebody is honoring a day of the week, or if somebody is not eating a certain meal, or if somebody, you know, um, let's talk about tattoos for a second. This is, was one of the ones I listed this morning. Again, just as an example, some people get a tattoo, and sometimes, you know, it's, it has meaning to them, and sometimes it's even a Bible verse or a cross or some, something like that. Other people hate it. Just whatever they did, here's the thing. We are to be doing everything unto the Lord. Just leave them alone. And if somebody doesn't get a tattoo because, you know, the bodies are, our, our bodies are temple and, you know, we, we don't want to dishonor the Lord in that way, just leave them alone. Dear friends, we have to keep the main thing the main thing. And that is that Christ died. That whether we play softball on Sundays or don't play softball on Sundays, whether we get a tattoo or don't get a tattoo, whether we eat something or we don't eat something, that Christ might be worshipped in all of it. You follow? And again, look at verse 6. I, I know I read it, but I didn't really pause there. That honor the Lord. The one who eats honors the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains does it in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. This is what it's all about. It's about a life of continual worship. And just know this. Just know this. This is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but very much applies. Is that do not think for one second that God will intentionally put somebody in your life who you disagree with on these secondary issues just to sanctify you. Oh, he will. You see this in the 12 disciples. Um, Matthew was a tax collector. Again, he wrote the Gospel of Matthew, so he would probably maybe a little bit more familiar with him. One that we might not be as familiar with is a, one of the disciples named Simon the Zealot. Very quickly, Matthew was a Jewish guy, a tax collector, but he had sold out to the Romans, so to an occupying country, and was collecting taxes for them, and would also take extra on top for himself. That's how tax collectors made their money. And he was allowed to pretty much uh, take on as many extra taxes as he wanted, and that's what he would line his pocket with, and the rest of it he would have to give to Rome, okay? So there's that dude. <laughs> and then there's Simon the Zealot. And the Zealots were actually a group that wanted nothing more than to liberate Israel from Roman occupation, okay? So you've got this, like, militant militia dude, and you've got a guy who's working for the occupying country. And Jesus goes, I'll call you both. And I'll put you together. It doesn't say this. I wonder, you know, there's times when Jesus sent them out by twos. During the, I wonder if he put Simon and Matthew together. I wonder what that was like. But God will do this. He will do this. And it's because he is Lord of all of our sanctifications, so to speak. He's working to make us like him. Third gospel concept that we need to calibrate our hearts to um, is to know this, we will all give an account to God. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is very straightforward, verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your who? On your brother. Why do you despise your brother? So again, he's, he's using family language here, and that's what we are. For, for, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow. 
to me. Every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account, an account of himself to God. So look at the word all. Look at the word every in uh, that phrase, in that quote from Isaiah. Every, every knee, every tongue, each will give an account of himself to God. So his point here is saying, look, while you're busy judging your brother, you need to come down off that judgment seat and you need to remember that you're going to stand before the judgment seat. And that should be enough to keep you busy, friend. <laughs> now hear me, hear me. Let's do some good theological work here. When we talk about standing before the judgment seat for Christians, in regards to our justification, the we are justified in Christ, not only declared not guilty, but declared righteous in him because our judgment that we deserved was poured out on Christ on the cross. And yet the Bible teaches very clearly in several different places, this is one of them um, most succinctly, that we are all going to stand before the judgment seat. The word judgment seat is this Greek word bema. Um, it, is, it, is, it is where Jesus stood when he stood before Pilate, and Pilate came out to judge him. Um, it's actually most frequently used in the book of Acts, and almost every single time it's used, it's Paul standing before a bema, or before a judgment seat of an earthly ruler, whether it be Festus or Felix or, or Caesar or somebody, or somebody like that. And again, I think the reason Paul uses this in his writings is because he talks about the bema of God, the judgment seat of God, because he had stood before so many earthly bemas. And the reason he stood before, uh, and the reason he was not afraid when he stood before these earthly bemas or judgment seats was because he was aware that one day he was going to have to stand before a much more important judgment seat. And that's what helped him to be able to testify. But now here's the, here's the point. He knew that that was true for him. He also knew that it was true for every one of his brothers and sisters. And so again, he's writing here as when he's saying, I know that I'm going to have to give an account before God. Not that I, I, we're earning our salvation, but dear friend, we will give an account for what we've done with what we've been given. We absolutely will. And some of us maybe need to, there's probably two different ditches here that, that we fall into. Some of us need to root ourselves again in the gospel because you're constantly living as when you stand before the judgment seat, it's going to be whether or not you make it into heaven. That's not what the judgment seat is. Christ took your punishment, okay? However, you will give an account. And some of you, or some of us, I should say, that we, we tend to, we've drifted over time towards what I would call a hyper-grace. Now, grace is all important. It's much of what I'm talking about this morning. But make sure that it's biblical grace and not counterfeit grace. And you've accepted this version of grace where you're not going to be held account for anything. And when you see Jesus as he's portrayed in the book of Revelation with eyes like fire, voice, a face shining like the sun in all of its strength, a voice that sounds like thunder, and rushing waters, that you, you, you think that you're not going to do what the Apostle John did when he seen him, which was he turned and saw him in his glory and he fell at his feet as though dead. You think Jesus is just going to come up and just give you a fist bump and a high five. Dear friend, there is a good, healthy fear of the Lord that if we understand who Jesus is in all of his glory, it should make us gulp a little bit. Not because we're trying to earn our salvation. Please hear me again. And I, I, for those of you that come here, you know it's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But we will give an account, and it is a, one of the primary motivations that the New Testament puts forward for living a holy, righteous life. Is that we're going to stand before him and we're going to give an account. Let me give you some Bible for this, I guess, real quick. 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it says, According to the grace given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, the day when Christ comes back, when we stand before him. Because it will be revealed by fire. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Get this, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So if you're in Jesus Christ, you've laid a foundation of Jesus Christ. You're saved. But each one of us, each and every day, whether we're aware of it or not, we're building upon that foundation with the life that we've been given, to either build upon it in a way that is a life of continual worship, helps others to do the same, that's building upon it with gold, silver, and precious stones, or we're just building upon it in the flippant works of the flesh, which he describes as wood, hay, and stubble. And on that day, those moments of our lives in which we have lived for wood, hay, and stubble, they're going to be burned up. And this is the straightforward teaching of Scripture. One other one's here that specifically mentions the Bema or the judgment seat. <coughs> Excuse me, in Paul's epistle, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want you to listen to the first couple verses and then listen, listen to the last one, okay? This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. Because Paul here, what he does is he, he displays or, or exhibits the right attitude that we are to have in holding these two things together, that we are totally saved by grace, and yet we should, we should, live with a sobriety and a good, healthy fear of the Lord. Here's what he says. So, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, while we're still here on earth, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. He says it again. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Paul said, like, Paul's not afraid. He looks forward to that day, to live as Christ and to die as gain. But then he says, verse 9, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please the Lord for, here's why, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Did you know that you're going to do that? You're going to do that. And this is a gospel truth that should help us keep our eyes on ourselves and help others in their continual worship of Jesus. Fourthly, the culture of the kingdom, the culture of the kingdom of God is not marked by superficial religious practices, but by rich eternal qualities brought about by the Holy Spirit. I gotta go fast here. Verse 13, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Again, he's talking about things that they eat, things that they don't eat. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Did you get that? You are no longer walking in love. Don't just think about your life just as your life. Do what you can to not help your brother stumble so that he may, might maintain a clear conscience. He says, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Here, here's his point here. Don't flaunt your freedom. If you think that you're free to drink alcohol, yeah, God bless you. But don't go around to those who have a conviction against not drinking it and just tipping them back and flaunting your freedom in front of them. 
Don't do that. Be wise in the way that you act towards not only your brothers and sisters in Christ, but towards outsiders. This is things that we should know, and it should influence our life. Again, and I know we're down into the nitty-gritty here, what we eat, what we drink, whether we can drink alcohol. Dear friends, I told you, the Bible will press on every area of your life. Because Jesus is Lord, not just of Sunday mornings, but of every moment of your existence, and he holds his very, your, your very breath in his hand. Okay, So he goes on here. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Okay, that, that would be the same thing as like, if you do believe you can drink alcohol, take a sip and praise God for it. Hey, this wine is good. Hey, this drink is good. Praise the Lord. Verse 17, here's the point. Four, four, four. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and of peace and of joy in the Holy Spirit. Let me state my point again. The culture of the kingdom, the culture of the church, it's not to be marked by superficial religious practices. You can eat this, you can't eat this, you can drink this, you can't drink this, you can do this, you can't do that. It's not marked by superficial religious practices, but it is to be marked by rich eternal qualities brought about by the Holy Spirit. Here he lists just a few of them. Righteousness and peace and joy, are these the things that people encounter as they come to fellowship with us? Our righteousness, peace, and joy, and you could add more, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and things like these, hope. Do people encounter these things in the temperature of our church? What are you calibrating your thermostat towards? Superficial action or deep abiding rich qualities that are rooted in the power of the Holy Spirit and which Jesus died to bring about. Dear friends, don't miss the point. Don't miss the point. Moving along, more we could say on that, but I gotta keep going. Lastly, gospel concept that keeps us calibrated to a right temperature of grace is that faith is always central to everything that we do as disciples. Faith must always be central to everything we do as disciples. Read with me quickly, verses 20 through 23. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Now, again, this is a, a prime verse that people could rip out of the context. Well, that just means we're supposed to be quiet. We're not supposed to share our faith. In the context, he's not in any way talking about not sharing the faith of the gospel so that others might believe. He's speaking about these personal convictions of faith. He's saying keep it between yourself and God, Okay. Um, he says, the faith that we have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. In other words, live with a clean conscience. If, if, if you feel that it's wrong for you to drink alcohol or to go to certain places or to do certain things, then don't do that. If you're free, if you feel free to do that and the Bible doesn't explicitly forbid it, then go do it. It's really that simple. Why? Verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. And now we're back where one of the verses I read at the beginning. For, for, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Here's what this does. And understand this in the logic of the text and all that we've talked about it in keeping the main thing 
the main thing. It's what that little phrase at the end of verse 23, for whatever does not proceed from faith and sin, here's what it robs from you. It robs from you your nice little list. Your nice little list by which you like to judge other people. Personal convictions that you hold, and God bless you. Go ahead and hold them. Dress a certain way. Don't do this. Do this. As long as you're doing it to worship unto the Lord, God bless you. But here's the deal. The daily rhythms by which you practically interact with the Lord in a life of worship should not become a metric by which you judge others of their spirituality. Let me say that again. The daily rhythms by which you practically interact with the Lord in a life of worship should not become a metric by which you judge others of their spirituality. That's his point here. And see, it takes away our list from us because it's not just about the outward. No, no, no. That's law, and that breeds a performance-based acceptance culture. But see, faith goes much deeper, not just to what we do, but to the condition of our heart. And see, this is what Jesus would say to the Pharisees. He said, these people honor me with their lips. They talk a real good game, but their heart is far from me. What is the condition of the heart that Jesus wants that is pleasing to him? It's faith. Or to just use another word, it's, it's trust. It's personal trust and thankfulness that we, like Mephibosheth, lame cripples, are brought into his table and we're sat before him. So we'll begin to wrap up here quickly. I'm going to repeat myself on some things here I know, but, but I just want us to really think about this. Dear friend, what have you been setting the thermostat to? Would people describe you as someone who is a source of relational peace or would they describe you as someone who is a source of relational division? Now, I know, you know, if you're like me, I'm going to go, oh, I'm a person of relational peace. Yeah, maybe I should ask those who know me best. Maybe we should all do that. I wouldn't doubt that some here this morning, and I say this with much grace in my heart, knowing that I have done the exact same thing, I promise you. But some of you need to step down off the Bema. You need to step down off the judgment seat. And you need to remember that there's only one who gets to sit there. It's Jesus. <coughs> some of you need to stop flaunting your freedom. It's not helpful to your brother or to your sister. And I think all of us need to come back once again and calibrate our hearts to the grace that we found in Jesus Christ. Worship team, you come up, and I'll just tell one quick story as we close. A couple months ago, not that, maybe two months ago, our washing machine gave out. And it gave it, and we, you know, we got four boys. It was in the midst of soccer season. Like Hannah's doing laundry, like <laughs> a lot every day. It was just, and so, man, I, I went and got a tray, borrowed a little covered trailer, and I went to Lowe's. And I was, just give me a washer. Let's go. <laughs> we got laundry to do, you know. And I walk in there, and you know they've got like, I bet ten to fifteen models, and they're all sitting right there. And I go, okay, what about this one? Oh, we don't carry that one in stock. You can't get that in the store. Okay, well, I said, well, what about this one? 
Uh, yeah, you, I mean, it'll be two days. We can order it, but, you know, it'll be two days till delivery. I said, okay, what, what, what about this one? Uh, same thing. I said, do you have any washers that I can take with me today? She goes, no. <laughs> I was like, I brought a trailer. <laughs> I couldn't actually get what they had on display. I couldn't actually get it. I mean, I could eventually, and I, I did. It took two days, and they delivered it. But I, but I couldn't get it when I needed it. Yesterday, our dryer gave out. <laughs> I went to a, a local store, knowing that Lowe's would let me down. Um, just kidding, God bless Lowe's. Uh, but I went to a local store, and I walked in there, I began to look. He's like, which one do you need? Wash or dryer or both? I said, just the dryer. He's like, get that one right there. That's the one you want. I said, really? He's like, yeah. Just, he told me some quick reasons why this is the one you want. I said, can I take it with me today? He goes, I'll put it in the back of your truck right now. And I kid you not, within, and again, you can say I'm not the most discerning buyer, but literally, I bet within seven minutes, I walked into this place, and I had a dryer in the back of my expedition, and I was rolling home. Now, next time I need an appliance, guess where I'm going? Because I could, actually, I could actually get right then and there what I needed. Oh, dear friend, please hear me. In church, I know you're with me on this. I know this is our heart, but the word of God is checking us this morning to search it. Every single week on Sunday mornings, people come in those doors not just people who don't know Christ, but each one of us. Every single day, we interact with people, and we talk about the grace of God. And we put it on display in our lives, but I'm asking us, can they actually get it? Can they actually get it from you? When they mess up, when they sin, when they fall, let alone all these little superficial things, can they actually find that grace in our lives? Or do we just display it, but sorry, you're going to have to come back later. Mercy Hill, we got to own this. And we need to come back again, and as we sing, we need to ask God to search our hearts and make sure that we are actually offering that which we display. Amen? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you so much for the goodness of all the gospel concepts that we talked about this morning. Dear Jesus, I, I, like, I am convicted myself for all the theology that I know that how often people have needed grace in their lives and I have not been there in an instant to get it and get them out and give it to them. <laughs> So, Father, please, please help us. Lord, we, as we stand and we sing, we look again to the cross. We look again to the mercy and the grace that was shown to us there and the beautiful hope of the resurrection. Father, let us let grace flow from our lives freely and willingly to all who need it. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.